Welcome back, everybody, to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, and today Brock and I have a great interview for you guys with Samir Shah, who works at Driveline in their R&D department and has also written for Baseball Prospectus. If you can't already tell, uh, that I have a co- bit of a cold, and so hopefully you guys don't mind too much my nasally voice on today's podcast. But I really hope you guys enjoy the great content that we have for you today with Samir. Samir, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background with baseball and how you got to kind of where the point you are right now. Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Um, Basically in Seattle, it's always raining. So, you know, guys are in facilities and the area is pretty tight knit. So you get to cross paths with some, you know, some different minds and some different people that, um, you know, end up doing some pretty cool things in baseball like Kyle Bodie. Um, you know, worked pretty hard to just scrap my way onto a Division three roster in uh, Orange, California at, at Chapman University um, as a position player. Um, and, you know, didn't have, you know, a spectacular career, but kind of did everything right to, you know, continue to be part of the, the team and, and contribute in whatever way I could. Um, you know, after that, I kind of realized I wanted to work in baseball um, and, you know, test the waters on that side. So I was fortunate enough to, you know, have a relationship with, Kyle Bodie, the founder of Driveline, um, and, you know, reached out to him and went through their interview process and ended up getting hired as an R&D intern, um, where I kind of got the opportunity to start learning about a lot of different tools and technologies and, and the data that I didn't have um, at a Division three school like Chapman. And then from there, um, I also started writing for Baseball Prospectus, and that was just kind of a way for me to go out and, you know, be at a field, um, being a little different than the facility in terms of, you know, getting to go watch games and trying to evaluate guys and grow that skill set as well. So tell us a little bit more about just your overall experience um, working in R&D with Driveline. Like what are the kind of, uh, you mentioned like tools and techniques, but what are the things that have really stuck out to you as far as, uh, you know, changing the way that the game is either looked at, analyzed, or even played on the field. And if I could piggyback on that, how did you, uh, what, what kind of a background set you up to get hired into R&D? Right. So for me on the, on the background side first, um, you know, I had started diving into more programming stuff um, on the data science stuff and, you know, having a background in a little bit of a background in data analytics that I acquired, um, the last couple of years of college allowed me to, you know, kind of give them the opportunity to maybe not be the most technical guy, but help out on that end as well as, you know, some of the more um, operational stuff like operating in the biomechanics lab um, and, and having played, you know, being able to, to work with hitters and understand, you know, KVEST and how, how, you know, I could understand it from the hitting perspective and, you know, be able to get in a cage and throw to a guy and, and do all that as well. Um, but, from my experience at Driveline, I would say um, as an R&D intern, it's incredibly um, diverse in what you get exposed to. Um, and I think the takeaways that I have is just there's so many different areas um, that you want to be able to learn as you're trying to break into baseball. And, and Driveline is great for that because not only are they um, diving into some really cool projects on the data side of things, but um, they're using all these technologies and also pushing new technologies that – you know, maybe 
maybe people don't really see that, hey, they might not end up finding out a lot of stuff from certain technologies, but, you know, those could be the new cutting-edge technology um, that continues to change baseball. And so from the outside perspective, being part of that process of seeing the success they have, but also um, the projects that are not successful is, is just as interesting to me. When did you start your internship? So I started in, um, I believe, last October. Hmm. Okay. So that's that's been a pretty good... So did you go from intern to employee, or are you still an intern? Yeah, so I went from intern into employee, and then okay. now, um, you know, the, the new goal for me, I think, um, is to kind of get into an organization and try and use my skills, kind of similar to you know, Brock and, you know, try and find the right fit. And that's kind of the, the cool thing about driveline to me um, is that you are exposed to a lot of different areas. So you can kind of see, hey, where might my niche be? Where might I need to improve? And then, you know, where um, are areas where I didn't really get exposed to as much, but I would be really interested to continue, continue to learn. So on that end, you know, like sports performance or sports science, that's not really an area where I got to spend a ton of time. But, you know, it's an area that I think is going to be increasingly important as we put all these different technologies and tools together. So what would, if you were to get hired by an organization, what are you looking for in an organization and a position? Do you have a kind of an idea now from your experience at Driveline, what type of a position would be a good fit for you? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of that combination of, you know, being able to work with the data, um, maybe not on the same scale as a quantitative analyst, but work with the data in terms of tackling some different research projects. But I think really where my niche is, is kind of interpreting that data and interpreting that technology and being able to maybe earn um, players trust, whether it's at an, an, an affiliate um, or at a different level um, in terms of, hey, here's why we're using this technology. Here's where, it, here's where it's used. And um, I do think a huge part of that is being able to um, build those relationships with players. And I think that's much easier to do um, with a little bit more of a playing background, even though obviously I didn't play professionally. Um, and I think that's kind of what I realized from being a driveline that, you know, those skill sets on both ends allow you to, A, you know, work with players front on the front-facing side, but B, go back um, and tackle different research initiatives. Yeah, definitely. I think it's... Um you know, more and more the game is progressing for needing to have people that, you know, are well-versed in interpreting the data, but also, you know, can hold a conversation with the player. And I'm just kind of interested to get your take because um, even though, you know, from a professional standpoint, you know, you might not be regarded as as technical as some of the full-time analysts, I think in the overall, like, grand scheme of like the baseball community, you're very technically skilled. So what are what are some uh, just simple either um, metrics or um, analytical techniques that that you think are are kind of like your foundational starting points when you're evaluating players uh, that maybe coaches aren't doing kind of at the high school, maybe even the college level. Right, I think. I think for me, and I think I really took this from Driveline, it's, you know, why are you looking at certain data? Or what, what are these reports going to do for our players? And I think you have to kind of reverse engineer in terms of, you know, what, what would I want to know as a player? What would help me? Um, and then kind of think of that as the case for 
all these different players, and that's why I think you know learning from guys like Jason Ochar, um, and just seeing what they're doing. How are, how are you guys creating a program for you know 15 different guys that are somewhat individualized? Um, and I think on that end, that's something that I've really taken, and you know I'm going to try and continue to work on as I move throughout baseball in terms of you know how, how can I take this data? How can I take all these different numbers and put them together to basically back up with what we're, we might be seeing with our eye um, and give guys different quantitative objective feedback that's going to make sense to them as well and that's going to you know, help address the issues they're having. And so on that end, I think you know, having that idea of why a guy might be running into certain problems and then going and trying to find the data that's going to back it up or maybe answer a question that we can't understand um, is huge. And that's why I see you know, tools like KVEST and even TPI screenings, being able to understand that whole picture is I think why a place like Driveline or why some of these um, different hitting coordinators and different organizations are getting very successful with certain certain guys um, being able to kind of have that full picture drawn out. I think that was really uh, nicely put about, you know, having starting with the question like what are we trying to accomplish before we even look at measuring something. And I think that in today's age where you know, kind of all of a sudden we've been introduced to so many new, like, uh, different data sources that's recording, whether it's um, batted ball information or, you know, the bat information with Blast or, you know, Rapsodo, Modus. Like, there's so many different data points that it can almost be, um, you know, it can almost like lock you up because it feels daunting about like all the different things um, that you could or should be measuring. So I think, like you said, like the need is different for everybody. Like whether you're, you know, at the youth level or high school, college, like we all have different goals of what we're trying to accomplish. So after you kind of define, you know, what we're trying to improve, I think, like you said, that uh, that helps us track and measure things a lot more effectively. And I just want to I want to read a quote that um, I came across uh, this week, and I think it kind of sums all that up perfectly. Um, We've allowed our research agenda to disproportionately be influenced by the availability of data rather than the value of a particular question. And I think that's just so on point for kind of today's era where a lot of people are, you know, they're trying to use analytical techniques, um, you know, maybe to stand out of a crowd, um, whereas the the overall effect and impact on players might be a little lower. And I think we kind of got away from asking important questions, whether it's for our players or for just baseball in general. Definitely. That, that's really well put. So I guess uh, an easy segue would be, what are some questions that you have um, just about baseball or player development in general that you've been looking into lately or that you would like to uh, learn in the near future? Or, or that's just come up in your experience at Driveline. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I guess there's a lot of different questions that intrigue me um, and that are interesting. I guess I'll start off by saying one of the things that's really exciting to me about joining an organization um, 
the, the, the possibility of joining an organization is really understanding, you know, there's some teams that have so many analysts. Where, where do all of them spend their time? And, you know, what kind of projects are they tackling? And, and how are they going about building these, these models? I mean, that's kind of an area where um, I'm very interested to see. Um, and then for me, on that end, I'm interested to see what people are going to be doing with Hawkeye and, you know, how they might build a model that's going to help predict workload. And you know what the next um, echelon is of player development and using these technologies to basically give us a better picture of you know what a player might do, whether that's from the amateur scouting side or whether that's from um, the player development side of having a player in the system. Um, I guess through driveline, I'll say that um, there's a lot of really really in-depth questions that I think they have you know been public in their um, ability to address you know i think we've kind of seen on twitter the gaze tracking stuff and i think that kind of presents a you know a very tough question something that maybe we miss as analysts or don't think about from the outside of you know how do we understand how a guy is seeing a ball um you know we have this whole mantra of you know let's get this guy to be more patient as a hitter let's get him to not swing at this pitch on the black um and we have that that whole concept of you know refining an approach but how do we really understand what a guy is seeing how well he's seeing the ball and, you know, if he's making a decision, is it a cognitive thing or is it the fact that he's not seeing the ball well? And I think, you know, when you start digging into questions like that, it's really, really, really uh, fascinating because those are some things that, you know, we we miss or maybe don't think about um, until we get in a batter's box or until we're around hitters. I mean, that, that brings up a lot of, like, <clears throat> good questions. One on the gaze tracking I have lots of questions about gaze tracking and workload. I mean, when it comes to workload, how much have you guys looked at workload at driveline? And then have you guys done any of the looked at any of the research or done your own research on uh, utilizing either hand dynamometers or force plates for like testing shoulder strength? Um, have you guys looked into any of that stuff? I know, I think, Driveline put out the article that on the I believe the Astros doing some research um, with shoulder testing and force plates um, for signs of like fatigue and recovery. I don't know if you guys looked at anything with that or anything else to do with workload. Right. Person personally, during my time there, I have not. I do know that they have done a lot of cutting edge stuff on that end, uh, and will will continue to as well. Um, and I think those are those are really interesting topics that you brought up. Um, personally, I think that the research there, um, you know, is going to take a little bit longer, um, just because it's such an untouched area. Um, and I think that you know, any any of these different things, in terms of implementing and trying to understand, you're going to need a pretty large sample size to be confident in, you know, your findings. And I know that the people on that end. Um, you know, Alex Caravan, the quantitative analyst, and people within R&D and, and Kyle um, do a really, really good job of, you know, making sure that their findings are accurate before presenting anything or before coming to any conclusions. Uh, and so on that end, I, I haven't been a huge part of that. Um, and that's kind of the sports science thing is something I didn't really get exposed to as much. Um, but on the gaze, tra gaze tracking thing, I have seen some, some um, you know, different information that I think is interesting, but I think it goes back to the fact that, you know, coming to conclusions and continuing to push out this research um, takes a lot of time and also takes a lot of bumps in the road that people don't 
you know, really see from the outside. So I'm super curious because I've, I've been trying to put together a research uh, proposal on um, gaze behavior and kinematics between hitting off of a pitching machine and uh, a live pitcher. And in the research that I've looked at, it seems as though um, one of the cricket studies talked about how cricket batsmen will park their gaze at the um, on the outlet of where the ball comes out. And then we know from some of the other research that they use a little bit more of a pivot strategy, um, which I have questions about, at least in terms of the definition. But anyways, you know, they have a pivot strategy where they'll start looking at the uh, the center of mass and then work out towards some of the more of the uh, distal um, like components like the elbow or the wrist. Um, have you... Have you guys actually looked at any of the gaze behavior with a machine versus uh, a live arm? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is something they have been diving into, and are I know they're just kind of going in that direction. Um, one of the reasons is because I think trying to get an ample sample size from and figure out how the technology works, and obviously running into bumps in the road with the technology. But I know that right now they've gone to you know, in their short box simulation and, and live at bats, having guys actually wear it to try and look at look for different things and then start to try and, you know, also get it to the point where you're understanding how I the eyes work in an actual game. Um, but but back to the cricket thing, I mean I think that's a really interesting point and um, you know, I you know grew have grown up watching cricket and, you know, have a dad that dad that played cricket actually. So on that end, um, I find that very fascinating and I actually have looked into a lot of that stuff as I've gotten more curious to, you know, how the eyes work together. And on that end, I think it's one of those things where, you know, those, the eyes in cricket can act a little bit differently uh, because, because the ball is, you know, pretty much always going to bounce. Um, and it's also one of those things where somebody's running or moving at you. It's, you know, it's really hard to keep a uh, hard focus on the release point. Um, and you, you know how that could tense you up in baseball. If someone was, you know, running at you, crow hopping, so I think I think on that end it makes sense that that's the way the eyes work in, in their sport, and um, it'll be really interesting to see how some of this new research and even with Hawkeye having a lot of different capabilities um, for us to kind of understand all these things, and then on the counterpart of it to go and actually implement it with hitters um, will be a huge thing um, because that's something that's missed. You know, we, we as hitters we will see in times where we are seeing the ball great and when we're not. And unfortunately at times, I don't think that as coaches or even as players, we've really been able to understand how to just start seeing the ball better all of a sudden. So representative design has been one of the main topics um, that we've talked about, which basically just talks about how um, similar a practice environment is to the actual game. And you mentioned short box, and I feel like, um, you know, it's kind of something that kind of became popularized at driveline, um, and it feels like maybe you guys are emphasizing uh, short box more now um, and maybe um, featuring machine batting practice less. Weren't you guys kind of pioneering? Was that the, the, the use of machines at one point driveline was, and then... Um, was that, was that still a big thing when you first started there or had they already started shifting 
like Brock has said, to yeah, short, sure. short box. So go ahead and just, for people who might not know, go ahead and tell them what short box is too. Yeah, so short box is basically, you know, they they have a huge advantage of having a lot of ex-pitchers as um, employees or even ex-position players. I threw some short boxes as well. Um, so they'll set that mound up, you know, depending on the pitcher, but basically around 50 feet. And that way, you know, a guy, the velocity pans out more to be more realistic to what a lot of these college or, you know, pro guys are going to be facing. Um, what what does it just, pan out to be about? Like, what are, what velocity are you guys throwing at? So and if, then... you're, if, you're, if you're throwing at 75 miles an hour, I believe it's about 90 miles an hour. Okay. So, um, and one of the one of the things there is, you know, there's guys that throw slower, there's guys that throw harder. You know, that's part of it. Um, and there's guys that throw from a little different distances, whether it's, you know, 55 feet. And there's guys like, you know, Anthony Brady in, in the, the R&D lab, who's a biomechanist who will throw from, you know, from the rubber and, you know, will be throwing at 90 miles an hour. And, you know, having those different constraints and having these guys be able to adjust to that um, is a huge part of, you know, the, the this new school philosophy of trying to challenge guys uh, realistically. And so on that end, I think the machine is still very popular. Um, it's just the fact that they're able to implement that short box um, at first, you know, just one day a week. And then as they get more arms, they're able to, you know, maybe implement it twice a week and then have a lot of different live pitchers. But the machine is a huge part of what they do. And obviously there's some issues with that. But at the same time, um, one of the cool things that I've seen in there is you're able to face, you're able to have a guy, um, you know, that's throwing, that hasn't thrown at all. And he's going to be throwing live out of bats. Um, you know, not Bauer in this instance, but, you know, maybe it's a, it's a really elite college arm. And you're able to go and pull up his rep soto data, hitting trainer is. And then basically simulate that with the machine, and you know that's kind of today's school of at least you're getting an opportunity to see, well, this is really what this guy's breaking ball is going to do. This is really where his release point is, and you know whether you, you know, miss time two out of seven or eight on your round, you know at least you're kind of getting to see what that ball does. And you know as hitters, obviously your timing is not going to be perfect, and obviously there are issues with the machine in terms of that. But I think. That's a huge advantage to be able to have that information. Um, and then I guess back to the short box um, part of things. I mean, I think it's something that's, you know, happening everywhere. I mean, I think um, the Rays, and I know some other teams, They've the Phillies, obviously, the Astros, you know, they've changed the way they, they do their batting practice uh, to try and get guys more realistic reps. And, um, you know, I've seen hitters and um, that haven't loved that because, you know, it's it's challenging to go in there and, you know, on a Tuesday night where maybe you want to work on something and instead of hitting front toss for an hour or, you know, facing overhand BP, you're, you know, facing a, a live arm from 50 feet. Um, you know, that that's a lot more challenging, but, you know, that hitting is hard and I think that that's a huge advantage and that's something that I know I wish I would have done more when I was playing. I think that um, even though, like you said, like just because the resources can be limited in a staff or a facility or even a, a pro club, like if you can implement, you know, a short box day, like once a week, like that has a compounding effect of, you know, how many more like live reps they're getting. So if you're doing that once or twice a week, like, um, you know, that's better than the alternative of two of those days just being a, a traditional, you know, flips in and toss type of day so even if it's like 
you only have enough to do it for one day. Like I think that over time, like you can really get um, a lot of value for, you know, exposing guys to more game-like uh, practice sessions. Um, Definitely. And I, th- and, and on the, on the pro side of thing, I think one of the things that I don't know if I've touched on it on the podcast before or not, but I think what we're going to start to see as teams be core, teams become more and more willing to spend money on player development as uh, former professional pitchers getting hired um, to throw, you know, live batting practice, you know, guys that might not have quite been able to have the stuff to contribute at a major league level, but have enough, you know, good stuff to challenge professional hitters. Um, what, what do you think about, um, the possibility of that happening and um, what are some potential drawbacks? Because I think um, if someone were to try to implement that at the major league level first, I think that you would have a lot of kickback from, you know, the established veterans already having a routine and, you know, obviously have a lot on the line. Um, So my kind of theory on that is you would have to first start that at a lower level so that, that's the norm um, to them coming up through the system. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, those are great points. I mean, I think it's something that already happens at some affiliates and in some organizations. I think the challenges there are finding enough guys that are able to, to do that um, consistently and, and also for some of the teams that maybe have tighter budgets, figuring out how to compensate those guys fairly and how often they're going to be there and how to make that work. Um, and I think that... I, as we've seen with maybe some, some you know, maybe development coaches or maybe even bullpen coaches, um, that's a good segue into getting a job in an organization if you can understand the data and provide some different values. So, uh, you know, if you're if you're a ex college pitcher that isn't, you know, can throw 90 miles an hour and you understand the data, I mean, that's a good way to get your to separate yourself on a resume. And I could definitely see that happening in the future. Um, but I agree with you that I think every hitter has a different routine and it's going to depend on the organization. It's going to depend on the hitter. And um, I think it's something that'll definitely, we'll definitely see more and more of it. And I I think I do believe the Rays have some guys actually, I think they're the one team that I know of that does do that in DP or does have that option to have guys throw. Um, And even to, even to, you know, take what you're saying to the next level. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how many different guys you can get and then what pitchers, you know, how are you going to simulate, how are you going to try and get these pitchers to simulate who they're facing that day? Um, you know, if that's, you have five pitchers and one of them, they're all a little bit different. You have guys that have different release points, guys that are from different places in the rubber um, and you're facing Madison Bumgarner and you have a lefty and you can shift him over to the rubber and he can change his release point a little bit and be comfortable. I mean, then you eliminate having to use the machine for a guy to just see that. Um, and obviously, you know, the more athletic pitchers you can get, they can go through and, you know, watch a little bit of film on a starter and really try and simulate what they do um, in terms of tempo of delivery and, and things like that, where, um, you know, you're going to see that starter two, three, maybe even four times in a game. I mean, that that's a huge advantage to get those extra at-bats or looks before, even if it is a little bit different. Well, and that's, that's where, like, when it comes to the gaze behavior um, stuff, it would be very interesting. Like, things that I want to know or look at is, like, what – what is a guy's gaze behavior the first time he sees a pitcher, like the very first pitch, um, maybe even like the first time he sees a certain pitch, and then 
how long does it like does it change over time his gaze behavior um <clears throat> and that would be interesting to see if by doing more of the live looks like and even having guys maybe even changing pitchers like maybe you have two bp guys um if by them doing that if they actually learn how to adjust their eyes more quickly to a a new pitcher, a new release point, and are better able to pick up those those changes. Um, and then additionally, though, I'm curious your thoughts on like, so instead of having like a, a uh, like you were talking about like short box, well, if a guy throws, let's say his top speed is like 90, 92 or whatever, if you brought him in a little bit and he starts throwing anywhere from like, I mean, you were saying like 75 before, well, what if he's now throwing like, like 82, 83. Box. Well, right. But if you put him in at like 50 feet and he's throwing like 80 now, he can then throw more. You know, as long as he's not throwing – like if you throw sub max, I feel like you can throw for a lot longer than if you're throwing like trying to, you know, get guys out and continually keep your velo, you know, near your like top. top kind of velo. a more – quantity over exact quality type of argument for as far as well when you're in closer you're the the relative speed now becomes the same as what your top end speed was right. so that's that's where you can you can actually utilize those stretch those guys out and get more out of them and not tax them as much um and maybe potentially use them more often um at for for uh, bp and whatnot i'm still yeah that's... oh sorry go ahead samir well, yeah. So, I mean, I think those are really, really strong points. Um, and I think as Brock kind of hit on, brings up a good point in terms of it really, you would really have to understand the guys that you have on your roster and who would actually be willing to face them and who, how often they would want to face them because then you could actually create a plan. And obviously there'd be some challenges there. Uh, but if you had only four hitters or five hitters that were going to benefit from it and that were going to face them, then, um, you know, maybe there's a better way to, to create that system. And I'm sure um, if, you know, a Jason Ochart was a, was a hitting coach or, or somebody who has that same philosophy, they'd be able to kind of come up with that plan and, and implement it in, in a way that they're able to maximize the arms that they have and, and get for, for, the, for the games and situations that are coming up. Because what was interesting, like I know years and years ago, um, probably in the, like the early to late 2000s, like the twins, when they were going to face a lefty, brought somebody like a lefty in to throw batting practice to their their hitters. Like it's not a completely new idea. It's just like it's just not done very often. But to jump back to go to um, more of the college and high school level, my thought is is why don't teams, especially because they're limited on coaches, oftentimes resources and time. Why don't coaches combine pitchers and hitters practice together. So like, for example, often guys throw uh, short boxes or throw a bullpen, a light bullpen working on command. Why don't they just do that facing hitters? Because right. then all of a sudden, all that information that they need anyways, like having a catcher, having a hitter stand in there and swing, all of a sudden now they can see how their pitches are moving and then it's a little bit more of a competitive environment. The transfer is higher all that sort of thing. And I just think that would be more a more efficient use of 
players and coaches' times and practice time like to, for, to do for it that flat way. ground work and bullpens, just bring them in and do short have box. them throw. It's better transfer for pitchers because, you know, they get to throw to a catcher and have a batter in the Batters box, stand, yeah. and obviously it's a lot yeah. more realistic yeah. for hitters too. And the, the other thing too I saw recently um, that I believe Rob Hill had posted – a video of one of their pitchers or one of this yeah who who needed the the competitive environment and the best part was tanner standing in the back Mm -hmm. behind the catcher being the umpire and um you know like i've i've also thought about how does that play into not only the hitters like uh mentality but also the pitcher because how many times is there a pitch that the pitcher thinks is a strike and doesn't get called a strike and or it it flips and the the hitter thinks it was a ball and it gets called a strike. And so all right. of a sudden now both uh, athletes have to problem solve changes and shifts in uh, in the environment that they – in the practice setting that they normally wouldn't have to deal with. And I think that comes back to like we've talked about trying to make the practice environment more challenging because so oftentimes we try to make – the practice environment more fair and more comfortable for the athlete. And and I wonder how much though that comes down to setting a culture and really prepping the athlete and redefining what success is for the athlete when it comes to the practice environment. Yeah, I mean I think I think your your first of all, I think your first idea is great. I mean I think traditionally it's really hard to break some of those habits of hey maybe i mean i had this problem coaching a 16 u team and now it's an 18 u team um i had the problem of you know they're throwing short boxes or they're throwing sorry they're throwing flat grounds and they're really getting nothing out of it it's just 20 minutes that we're stapling off but you know traditionally that's what people do they throw flat grounds and so that's what you know most teams do and it's kind of the same thing it's like I think people are afraid to spend time other on other things because, you know, a lot of coaches grew up spending X amount of time on first and thirds and bunt coverages and PFPs and, you know, mass fungos. And I really think that, especially at the youth level, you know, we got to get kids uh, competing and, and getting better at things that are going to help them, you know, long-term, but also in games. Um, so I think that's a really fascinating idea. I haven't really thought too much about that, about actually having guys go out there and, you know, maybe throw a short box um, at a different intent. And especially if you're able to put down like a Rapsodo, then you can kind of still look at maybe some quantitative data on, you know, what did my breaking ball do today? I was working on that. Or, you know, how, how different was my uh, how different was my stuff based on my intent? Um, and having that kind of hold you a little bit accountable, um, as well as obviously, you know, facing a hitter. Uh, so I think that is really fascinating. But I think in general, I think breaking some of these habits um, – you know, they, they, it's, it's challenging and it's going to take uh, people pushing through some barriers, even at this, you know, the youth level where you think people would be more willing to experiment. Samir, so you mean to tell me in your professional opinion, spending 50% of a team's training economy on PFPs does not behoove pitchers? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> I think it's uh, it's one of those things where, you know, you want to put out athletes, right? I mean, I, you you put out athletes and they get a cumber come back or back to them. They're they're gonna figure out what to do. Um, I think working on it over and over again 
uh, taking your quote here that you know hitters can be ruined. I think working on those things over and over again can make you worse at PFPs or can make you worse at playing catch when you when you think about it and you you know over practice it in a non realistic situation without especially without any pressure. Um, how do you make it uh, to throw this out there? How would you make it more realistic? Yeah, so I think I think you got to do everything in game situations. I think every time you have a hitter in the box and a mount and a pitcher on the mound, I think it's more realistic. Um, you know, I know there's plenty of times in college where we're inter squatting and guys were like, "Man, I don't really want to inter squad." But once you get in that box and everyone's watching and and you're getting in that bat off a guy, you don't want to get beat. Um, and I think it's kind of that same thing where it's like even throughout the course of the year, you might have a round of VP where you know, your, your mind is somewhere else, but when you get in the box against a pitcher or when you're on, when you're on the mound and you're facing a hitter and you're, you're competing for a spot, people are watching, people are behind you, uh, I think that just makes things a lot more realistic, and, and that's one way to do it, and then I think the other way is just driving different competition through creativity, um, and I think I've seen a lot of, you know, good things on that end of, you know, trying to get guys to compete, whether it's, you know, having a game or an objective um, I think that's a different way to do it, but I think all those things help guys, uh, you know, get the best out of themselves. Um, you know, whether they really realize that day or not, um, you know, they're going to kind of challenge themselves and push themselves to do the right, do do whatever you want them to do in terms of, you know, finding the finding the constraint they need to work under. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong by any means, but I'm going to go ahead and say that it's just not even. It's not even worth trying to find like the most realistic uh, solution to practice because of how rare, at least on the the PFP side, because I think, you know, someone did some work and found out that pitchers feel the ball on less than 2% of all plate appearances. But it's just, it's ludicrous that you spend legitimately 50% of a pitcher's time training at, you know, at a, you know, the Division right. One level, they're spending fifty percent of their time at practice on events that happen two percent of the time, and you know I'm I'm partly joking, but I mean it's a fifty fifty chance they're gonna make the play anyway with pitchers, you know, because they're just <laughs> they're yeah. they're dummies, you know. It's right, it, right. I mean, and it's even. Go ahead. Well, I mean, having having been at the Division One level, I think some of it too is like, what do we do with all this time? Like, I've seen I've seen pitchers sit around and Play like Fortnite, like and not do anything, to like have nothing yeah. to do at practice, and so that becomes something to do. But in addition to it, I think, like, just think though, at the division level, division like collegiate level, let's go with that, versus the professional level, I think you have two different athletes between the professional level and the collegiate level, also in terms of their ability to get rattled. I mean, like, we can look at, like, uh, Aggie Grito bunting 14 times against, like, one of the best <laughs> pitchers in the league yeah. and just throwing them off his game. Like, that, I think, is is the difference between college and the professionals. But going back to actually developing uh, – you know, athletes as pitchers, I think one thing that you talked about and hit on was creativity, like in competitions and games. And I think when it comes down to practice in general, like especially when it comes to like the game is struggling with getting more players, like we're losing people actually joining and playing the game and continuing to play the game. And I think some of it's come down to practice has gotten so mechanics and drill focused 
that we've actually squeezed out the fun in the game for a lot of athletes. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to put fun back into the game and give athletes the ability to be creative, to be problem solvers, and to come up with their own solutions at times and to have fun when it comes to, you know, PFPs and like actually making it a game where they can have fun. They can actually make mistakes at times, throw it away, and we're not going to go yell at them (laughs) for, for trying to make a cool play. I mean, I think of like me being from Minnesota, like Brios, uh, and one of the, the really amazing plays that he made this year fielding, uh, either, I don't know if it was a ground ball or a bunt, but like, you know, at, at that level, youth and college, when you make a play like that, that's such a huge momentum boost for your team mm-hmm. versus when you don't. And so getting guys to actually have fun and have confidence and having been there before, um, in a practice setting, I think is, is huge for development and also putting fun back into the game. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I also enjoy looking at, um, and I know Brock does too. And, um, I also look at what other, what, you know, coaches and teams are doing in other sports and how you could maybe, maybe implement that in the, in the baseball. And I think it's really interesting. I think a lot of people, um, don't really get an opportunity to, expand on that creativity because you know a lot of us aren't coaching our own teams but i do think that there's a lot of things you can take from maybe a sport like basketball or even football um when you see coaches go outside the box and practices and you know as you're saying um try and push guys to new limits and i think that not only gives them confidence but it makes them you know realize how fun it is to you know kind of push themselves and challenge themselves as long as they're you know flowing into the right pattern of whatever you're trying to do well and two from a performance standpoint if guys are having fun they play looser Right. Like in the in the in the performance boost that you get from guys being in that mindset, I think I think we've forgotten and have at times undervalued that in the in this in the pursuit of um you know, perfect mechanics or being disciplined. Um at times I think sometimes that's come at the expense and I think we need to figure out a way to have a both and uh, versus one or over the other. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Gamifying any kind of training, I think, is just an easy way to get that kind of fun aspect of engagement, especially when you can just let guys be guys and, you know, mm-hmm. have an element of competing, even if it's something more, uh, you know, menial, right. you know. So I, I think that I think it's getting better, but I think, you know, a lot I think a lot in baseball more so than maybe other sports is there's just like a lot of you know, monotonous type work and practice where it's just, it's more of a grind than it is fun. And so any chance we have to, to make, you know, our training more fun for guys, I think you're going to get better engagement and you're going to get better, uh, you know, performance gains in the long term. Right. That's, that's a, that's a very good point as well. I think, you know, from the outside perspective, even after taking a couple of years off from playing and not being on a field, um, you know, you forget about that the season is a grind. You know, practices are long. There are a lot of different things that go into it. Um, you know, especially if you're, you know, a student athlete or in school, um, you know, it, it can be a grind and, and making sure that guys are having fun and pushing themselves is, you know, one thing that I think, um, you know, keeps guys motivated to continue to grow and get better. Well, hey, one thing that we do, uh, you know, we haven't had many guests, but 
one thing that I like to do is just uh, shout out. Um, what you want to go, Garrett? Yeah, I have a question. <laughs> so one of the things that I mean, you said you were in the R and D department. So like, did you? Um, like, what is the research process like? How do you actually conduct good research? And how do you, um, like, get good data? Like, what's the difference between good data and uh, not good data? Right. I think I think that depends on the project you're trying to target. Um, I think it depends on how familiar you are with the technology. So maybe if it's something you haven't used, you're just collecting data and trying to figure out what it means. And then if it's a project like, you know, you're working with something like KVS and you've had it for a while, um, then you're going in and you're trying to understand, hey, where might there be misreads? And sometimes that's going in by hand and, and deleting the misreads and getting rid of that data so that, you, you know, you're going to have to collect a bigger sample size because there are going to be misreads. And sometimes if that's a tool, um, you know, like Rapsodo, that might be writing a clustering algorithm that, you know, allows you to, you know, reclassify pitches for whatever you're doing. Um, so I think there's that data quality purpose um, that is really affected by how well you know the outputs of the data and your project. Um, and then on that end, I think conducting good research and on their on their, especially when you're public uh, publicly writing work as they do or research um, and and publicizing these papers, it's important I think to make sure you're answering the right question correctly and taking out any bias and that's where you know going back into conducting a good statistics experiment um you know making sure you have randomized groups and, and stuff like that is really important and they do a great job of that over there awesome yeah so i guess i jumped the gun on on the wrap-up but just tell us uh what kind of your favorite resources are for just kind of improving yourself in the baseball space whether that's Coaching, um, you know, statistics. I know you and I hold a special bond over the amount of time and money we've spent on Udemy. So just tell me, <laughs> yeah. tell me kind of the, you know, what sticks out to you as far as your own personal development. Honestly, I think one of my favorite resources is just meeting guys. And there's so many people that I haven't met in person. I mean, most people where you're able to drop a Twitter DM and ask a question and get different opinions. I think that's one of the biggest resources. I think it's like, you know, networking in any industry is huge, um, but networking in baseball is unique and it's different um, because, you know, you can drop a note to a guy on Twitter um, and, you know, get that follow or whatever and, you know, ask a question and get a response. And I think that's one way that's really intriguing and in not only making those connections, but maybe getting a different perspective than wherever you are or, um you know, reaching out to somebody about a project that they did. So I think that's one resource out, a little bit outside the box that I enjoy. Um, and then the other ones is, you know, typical to everyone. I love reading anything on The Athletic, you know, Baseball Savant, Fangraphs. And then in terms of programming, you know, being more like Brock where, um, you know, I'm a self-taught programmer uh, to some extent. Um, I think it's really cool to try and scowl for different projects and different code, um, whether it's trying to look at somebody's GitHub or a project um, or, you know, basically trying to recreate a project that's been, that's already been done and pushing yourself to uh, improve it or, you know, maybe add a different feature or use different data so that, you know, you're basically able to, you know, look at someone's process, but also add in your own uh, flair to kind of grow and um, gain that confidence that you can complete a project. What uh, kind of languages have you learned or do you know? 
So for me, I think my best language is, is Python, um, and then I'm pretty comfortable in R, and then uh, use SQL for databases, and then I've done a little bit of stuff with web application stuff, but it's been much lower level, so I've used Shiny, which is an R package, and um, I would encourage people to, um, even though that might not be something where, you know, if you're working for a team or a big company that you're going to use, I would encourage people to play around with it um, just because I think it does give you kind of the power to feel like, you know, you can build your own application and then um, keep something really organized and, and have all your thoughts kind of flow into a, a web page that someone else could use. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining the podcast today. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will get something out of this. And uh... where, where can people uh, connect with you, uh, Samir? Yeah, I think, I think uh, Twitter's probably the best place to find me. Uh, just first name, S-U-M-A-I-R underscore last name, which is S-H-A-H. Uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on. I, I you know, got a lot of thoughts from you guys, and it's always good to have uh, the opportunity to talk with some different baseball heads that have you know, had different experiences and, and uh, kind of come together and collaborate. And I'm sure um, you know, we'll be in touch about different projects and initiatives and and things that happen. And that's probably one of my favorite things about working in baseball. Yeah, man, it was great to have you on as well. The conversation was fantastic. Yep. So thanks so much for joining and for the listeners back home. uh, We'll see you next time. 